Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I want to start off this uh, potentially controversial episode with a story. About seven or eight years ago, I was in the middle of writing 10% Happier, and I went on what was then my second silent meditation retreat. I was at the Insight Meditation Society in central Massachusetts. And uh, before the retreat officially began, they served a lunch. And and after the lunch, you were supposed to go into silence. So you weren't allowed to talk after this lunch. But at lunch, you could talk. And I was sitting next to this young guy, a really smart young guy. I think he just graduated from Yale. He was really intense and serious about meditation and I think he had just finished a, uh, like a, a month-long or a six-week-long retreat and was rolling straight into this one. And at one point, after we're getting to know each other a little bit, he lowers his voice and says, have you heard of Daniel Ingram? <laughs> I said, no, I've never heard of him. Who is he? And he's still speaking kind of with a lowered voice. Uh, he said he's an emergency room doctor from Alabama who claims he's an Arhant or Arhat. There are two ways to pronounce that word. That word is traditionally used to describe a fully enlightened being. And this kid then goes on to say, don't mention him to the teachers. They get really upset. So I was immediately intrigued. Here's a apparently a Dharma controversy, which seems like it might be a contradiction in terms. Declaring yourself to be an Arhant or even talking at all about your what stage of enlightenment you're at is immensely controversial in Buddhist circles. The Buddha, as far as I understand it, specifically barred all of his monks and nuns from declaring their levels of meditative attainment. Uh, although the Buddha, we should say, talked quite openly about how enlightened he was, but I, you know, he was the Buddha. Anyway, it's considered to be uh, a verboten for monks and nuns and for the rest of us, it's considered to be bad form at the very least, and for teachers, it's considered to be perhaps uh, damaging to your students to say how you know what stage you are in the in the path toward enlightenment because it can provoke something that's very common among Western meditators, which is striving and competition. So traditionally, in in Western uh, meditation circles, they they try to be pretty careful about how or even whether they talk about the stages of insight or the stages of enlightenment. To be clear for a second here, before I get back to Daniel, um, we're talking about a very specific school of meditation. There are many schools of meditation and many maps uh, of the stages toward enlightenment. But in the Vipassana or insight tradition, there are there. it sounds a little bit like Dungeons and Dragons, but there are four stages towards enlightenment. One is the stream enterer, the second is the once returner, then non-returner, and then arhant or arhat, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce the word. So I, of course, you know, view all of this with a certain amount of ironic distance, um, especially at this time while I was still writing 10% Happier. Uh, I, I, I was pretty deeply skeptical that enlightenment was even possible, but I was really intrigued by the fact that here was this emergency room doctor clearly a sane, highly functioning individual who's walking around talking about how he's an arhat, in fact, had written a whole book called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha about how he was an arhat and how you could become one too. 
So I actually went and read this book after the retreat. It was like the first thing I did after I got out of retreat. And at first I was like, this is a little insane. Just but based on the cover, it was actually a PDF that he you could print out for free. Uh, that it was a self-published thing you could order on Amazon if you wanted to pay a little bit of money, but or you could just he was giving it away for free on his website. So I printed it out on my computer, and the cover has this kind of homemade art with some meditating guy with you know laser beams coming out of his solar plexus. I thought this is going to be junk, but then I read the book, and while it's it's definitely kind of over the top um, in some ways, at least this iteration of it. I say he's, I should say he's gone on to edit it, but this iteration of the book, uh, low these many years, was um, pretty over the top and, and provocative. And he was really criticizing Western Dharma teachers for hiding the ball, in his view, on enlightenment. He feels that this whole omerta that Western meditation teachers have adopted over this sort of code of silence over the stages of enlightenment is disempowering, that meditation, that enlightenment is doable for regular people, and he did it. And so he goes on to tell you his whole story and how you can do it, kind of cookbook style. I still, after reading the book, thought, yeah, I, is this guy crazy? I don't know. And then I had a conversation with about him uh, about him with my friend, Dr. Judd Brewer, who is a neuroscientist. At that point, he was at Yale. Now he's at Brown. He's done a lot of work looking at what meditation does to the brain. And Judd said the same thing. Like, I at first, I thought, I looked at the book. I said, no way. This guy's nuts. But then I read the book. He, this is Judd talking. I read the book, and I realized he's really smart which is what I had realized, too, from reading the book. And then Judd took it one step further. Judd actually put Daniel's brain in an MRI. He was doing a study at this point of advanced meditators, and he found that Daniel's brain was really different and interesting. It was clear that the, he, here was somebody who had done an immense amount of meditation. Now, you can't – he couldn't verify that he was an arhant or whatever, but clearly something's going on with this guy. I, after learning all of that, went out and, and went out to a conference where I heard he was speaking and I met him and I found him to be immensely likable. And, uh, you know, he's not, you're about to hear him. He's not what you would expect uh, an allegedly enlightened being would sound like. He's voluble. He's quite a character. Um, he's not afraid of provoking controversy and being critical. But I really liked him a lot and to this day consider him to be a friend. And I had, I ended up writing a whole chapter in 10% Happier about the issue of enlightenment that was kind of starring Daniel. And ended up cutting it out at the end um, because I thought, no, actually, this is probably a separate book, which I'll write at some future date. But I am very pleased to have Daniel on the show finally. Um, he doesn't do a ton of media. Um, he's a little bit media shy or traditionally has been. So I'm I'm happy that he came on. This is a fascinating discussion. I want to say before I dive in here, we're not doing voicemails this week because there's more than enough meditative content in in this show. But we are looking for new voicemails, so – and I'll remind you again at the end of the show. Uh, 646-883-8326, 646-883-8326. That's the, numbers, uh, the number to leave us a voicemail, and uh, it's in the show notes as well. All right, enough of me talking. Here we go. Here's Daniel Ingram. <laughs> well, it's awesome to see you again. It's great seeing you as well. Always love seeing you. Yeah. Um, where should we start? Well, let's just start where I always start, which is you know, how did you get interested in meditation? So I had a few meditation experiences when I was a kid where um, I remember when I was about three and a half years old, and I know this by the house we were living in at the time, where I would just lay down on my parents' down comforter downstairs in their bedroom and just start breathing. And I would 
breathe more and more slowly and I would get more and more peaceful and get these very pleasant feelings and then I would get sort of very equanimous feelings. I wouldn't have called them that when I was a kid. It's just a really nice thing I used to do. And um, so that's this little weird thing. And it turns out that's not unusual. Like I'm not saying like, hey, I'm this weird special person. I actually, if you ask people questions, a reasonable number of people actually had some kind of experience as a kid that then they kind of forgot about or got extinguished by something. I don't know where these things go and rediscovered it later. So that was the first little blip um, that, again, a little weird, but not that unusual. I have a four-year-old around the house. I have a hard time imagining him doing what you just described, but maybe I don't know his interior life as I think as I, I do, as well as I think I do. Yeah, so for some reason, my memories go way back. I can remember all kinds of things from when I was a little kid. I don't, I don't know. Um, you might be surprised. And yeah. most, in most of my three-and-a-half-year-old life, I was very much a three-and-a-half-year-old kid, <laughs> except for this one weird little thing. <laughs> the Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Right. There was, I don't think, anything else unusual about me. And uh, so then um, when I was uh, in about 10 years old, I was, went to this weird hippie Quaker school. 
and actually went second through fourth grade. And we would sit in meditation for 10 minutes every morning. So the Carolina Friends School in North Carolina in Durham. And I found it really irritating and annoying thing. We were just sitting there for 10 minutes. And they didn't have to, there was no technique or guidance or anything. It's just a Quaker thing. You sit in silence and see what happens. And so that got me at least some basic discipline because we did that every day. So I was doing, you know, I did, you know, however many hours that is, a reasonable number for a kid. And then in fourth grade, I got to take an elective. Again, it was a weird hippie school. It was kind of strange. Called Close Encounters, which was about like weird analog synthesizers. This was like 1979, you know, so a synthesizer then had all these knobs and dials, kind of like the new ones do today. It's kind of retro fad of analog but it was just amazing to play on this thing. And he explained like how the synthesizer worked. And then we did all these guided meditations where like we would do the thing where you like squeeze your toes and then relax them, and visualize warm light coming in and squeeze your feet and relax them, you know, and, and we'd go through a whole body and do that kind of stuff. And that was really neat. I just thought that was so cool. Like this is so much better than most of what I was doing in school, <laughs> you know, and so that was a lot of fun. And we would like visualize ourselves getting really big and like bigger and bigger, like as big as the room, as big as the school, as big as the city, as big as the planet, as big as the universe. And then we would get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller down to where we're like an atom. And then we would like visualize crawling around inside your body and seeing what your toes feel like and seeing what your feet feel like. And if you see, find anything that seems like it needs to be fixing, you can just fix it because you know how to fix little things. And so these interesting, weird visualization ex exercises from some hippie and 1970s, late 1970s. And then um, I've been having flying dreams since I was a kid. And I remember my first one when I was five years old and the first time I ever flew. And it was really amazing. Do you have flying dreams, by the way? I used to have flying dreams. Were they really cool? Yes. Yeah, so you know, right? And I'm sure plenty of listeners do too. And I just thought these were awesome. And I have no idea where I got this idea. Uh, sorry, where I got the idea from to then... Um, when I was about 14 or 15 years old, I thought, well, I want more flying dreams. Maybe I'll just visualize flying between like 50 foot, you know, wide billiard balls in space before I go to sleep for a little while. And maybe I'll have more flying dreams. Well, you just came up with this. Idea. I have n literally I cannot. There's nothing like I try to remember back. Like, where did this come from? Nobody. I, I was in suburban North Carolina. This is like 1983 or something. I had no access to meditation, anything except this, you know, exercises I had done like four years before or five years before, I'm not sure, something like that. And um, so, I'm, yeah, so I just decided to do this visualization exercise. And I was really frustrated that I couldn't visualize well. I'd kind of never noticed that it was hard to visualize or that I couldn't visualize very well. But if any of you have ever tried to visualize anything and visualize it really well, you'll notice it's really hard, right? It's really challenging to actually get the images good and stable and clear. Like, this is a serious project. And for some strange reason, my teenage brain really took to this project, and I was determined to somehow figure out how to visualize better. Well, when you do that, you start to learn things about your mind. Like if you know you want a color to show up, like let's say I wanted to visualize a yellow billiard ball that I could then visualize myself flying towards. Well, you sort of visualize and intend, and then you get to see what colors show up or shapes show up as a result of that. And then you notice your reaction to those, and then you sort of modify it. And there's sort of back and forth iterative process of figuring out how to get the visualization good. And that apparently was enough meditation insight to get me to a stage we would call the arising and passing away. I learned that stage name um, like 10 years, actually 11 years later, something like that. Let me just stop here for a second for anybody who's confused. Sure. So when you talk about stage in meditation, we're talking about the stages of insight 
in described in ancient Buddhist texts yeah. of things that happen in the mind of a meditator as she or he practices. Right. And it turns out these are actually just standard developmental things that you don't have to be a Buddhist to experience the stages of insight. You just have to somehow pay attention enough to something and notice enough about um, its impermanence, its changing nature, or something about its cause and effect, or, you know, there's these various things you can gain insight into. And if you pay attention well enough to your immediate sensate experience, some people will just flip into the stage. And when I flipped into it, I had this dream where, um, which I've described before, but we were standing on this road, me and two other people, and we were about three feet high in silver spacesuits holding ray guns. And everything was washed out and super bright. And this is an incredibly vivid dream. The colors are all just so bright. And the sun is like shining down like blazing sunlight. And we're standing watching this long, dusty road. And then all of a sudden, there's this cloud of dust and this horse, this like huge black war charger horse with a huge witch riding on it. And she's got like the pointy hat. She looks like your standard, you know, like Halloween cartoon witch or something. And and she's got a black dress and a black cape. And she comes riding on this huge war charger horse towards us. And she takes her wand and she points it at us. And this brilliant white light blazes out of it and my consciousness explodes. And at this point, to say I'm asleep is really stretching it. So the dream comes into wakeness, but in wakeness, my body is now flying all over my bedroom as like electric sparks, like a fireworks display. And it takes a few seconds for the sparks to kind of recoalesce into my body. And then I'm sitting there buzzing with this incredible sense of energy. And and um, by the way, the arising and passing away, the specific stage can present a lot of different ways. So this is just one semi-idiosyncratic um, experience of it. So it's a whole other topic. Not but, everybody who hits this stage has ray guns. and Right. No, some of these things are just geeky teenager, like in their brain, interpreting it. But some of the specifics, like sense of energy or presence, or sometimes, you know, for a few people, explosions of consciousness or meditating in dreams. What or, does explosion of consciousness mean? Like, it literally felt like my entire body and mind had just exploded into sparks, like that were just flying all over the room. So there's no you there to experience what that well, feels like? Well, somewhere, but fi- trying to figure out where that you was is would be disorientingly confusing. There was definitely some sense of experience or a reference point at this point it'd be very hard to figure out where because it was moving very fast and fragmented at, at but this point still, the, at this point in the interview i suspect some people listening are saying what what the hell is this guy talking about yeah and so it turns out a if you want to read about these things you can read all about the stages of insight because they're well described in a, in a number of texts including my own book which we can talk about later oh we will but um but these things it turns out have been described for you know at least um 2,300 years and probably much longer than that. And you can find various maps that talk about these kind of meditative phenomena or attention development phenomena in a whole bunch of places. So I could list a whole bunch of sources or we can put them in the show notes or whatever. But you can read about these things. And these things are things that happen to some people and actually a reasonable number of people. So actually, like my sister was walking down the streets of New York and all of a sudden her consciousness exploded. And for some reason, she crossed the rising and passing away. A lot of my friends um, I, a lot of meditator people I hang out with, um, be, you know, two people I've been married to have crossed the stage. It's not that unusual. And it's actually the most surprising thing to me is that it's not better known. And it's really weird that somehow this thing has been missed. And like, if you look at the life of Voltaire, the great philosopher, he describes perfectly an arising and passing away experience. And then all of a sudden he was this great philosopher. There's actually a bunch of examples of that. Hume is another example. Tolstoy has a good description and they all cross this thing. And once you cross this thing, you're a little different. 
And so what's another way to describe it using different terminology than your consciousness explodes? How could we describe it in a way that would be as simple as possible for people? Yeah. So actually, that's that could actually be an entire podcast. Um, and I can talk a lot about that. It's one of my favorite topics. And the problem is so a lot of experiences are functionally this stage, but they can look like a whole lot of different things. So, for example, some people have explosions of consciousness. Some people, they have some sort of a vortex-like experience. Basically, anybody who's talking about kundalini energy awakening, that's this stage. Um, some people just see like a brilliant white light uh, that somehow is kind of blissful for a lot of people. Um, it's a relatively common things for people to get into, particularly on meditation retreats. But plenty of people in daily life have this happen. I know someone who took a, as I've mentioned before, um, they were, she was an actress and she took a workshop on how to control her breathing such that she could deliver lines to the back of the room at relatively high volume but not run out of air at the same time. And that's a real you know, skill that people who are on stage need to learn well. And so that was enough like introspective paying attention that for whatever reason, the next time she walked on stage and started paying a whole lot of attention to her breath, boom, all of a sudden like her, she was on stage and it felt like her body just flew into fragments all over the room and like, and then she recoalesced, and obviously the play didn't go so well after that. <laughs> sort of one of those moments. Um, I actually had this happen to me while I was driving down an interstate one time, and luckily somehow I didn't manage to wreck. Uh, luckily, it didn't last very long. Um, okay, so if people are with us at this point, if they have, if they, if they, if they're not like thinking we're we're engaged in crazy talk up, up up until this point, the next thing they might be thinking is, okay, I'm meditating now. I don't want this to happen. Well, to actually, me. that's a reasonable and interesting point. So that's another whole thing we can talk about. So um, this stage also sometimes is not as dramatic. I'm talking about some of the more dramatic things, but like one of mine, it was just like this sense of energy that suddenly got between my eyes and sort of between my ears, and it kind of had this buzzy loudness, and it was like... And when it did the zip part, it just kind of zapped down the middle of my spine. And that was my whole arising and passing away. But it was enough to then have the effects that has, which are to throw me into the more difficult stages that pretty much always follow it. Now, the more difficult stages are not always that difficult. Sometimes they're kind of mild or sometimes not even that noticeable, but sometimes kind of challenging. And so we would call those the knowledges of suffering or the dukkha jnanas, dukkha meaning suffering and jnanas meaning insight stages, or St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul or you know various people. And so the trick with the arising and passing away is it can then bring up some psychological stuff and some deeper layers of ourselves that we then have the opportunity to practice with and work on and awaken, but can also be kind of thrown by sometimes. So I was then kind of thrown by these things. When you were a teenager. When I was a teenager. And the problem is, retrospectively— We're is back an, now into you in bed here. Yeah. Dreaming so, guns. Yeah. And then I also had my first out-of-body travel experience very shortly thereafter. I can't remember if it was that night or the next night, but I wear just float out of my body and floated through the wall. It's a common stage of practice for people to have first out-of-body experiences. Not everybody has them again. And some people just experience kind of blissful, tingly energy, like on their skin and like sort of weird tingles of chills or raptures. Some people experience kind of weird movements or spontaneous shaking or strange sniffing patterns. Some people, I mean, there, um, some people experience pleasure that is like incredibly blissful or even might be described as orgasmic or, un, you know, like, wow. A lot of people describe this as their conversion experience. So in Christianity, when someone says, I had a conversion experience and I saw the light, yeah, that light you saw, that bright white light that felt like the love of God or however you interpret it, that was your arising and passing away moment. Um, you see this described in all those religious traditions. You see it being a major sh turning point in a lot of people's lives. 
So St. Augustine is a classic example, like uh, St. Catherine of Avila. You can find, if you go back and a lot of, look at a lot of mystics, they had their first experience, and that was what we'd call the arising and passing away. Call it whatever name you like. doesn't matter. Um, but And so you, this is a universal human phenomenon that you find actually across religious traditions and even in secular people. So that's really interesting when people who are secular and have no reference points for anything woo-woo or whatever and all of a sudden have this experience. It can be kind of disorienting or surprising or confusing. And for some, it's kind of mild. It's just like some buzzy tingling and they didn't need to sleep as much and they had a really cool dream or whatever. And then that unfortunately was enough. And so diagnosing this thing is kind of complicated and actually requires some real expertise of the range of presentation, which actually takes a, a while to develop. This stage is also a common time for people to get very zealous or to suddenly think they're awakened, which it's just one stage on the way to what we would call awakening. You can draw your lines where you want. But um, or suddenly you like really want to tell everybody to practice or be incredibly excited about something. Or some people can have sort of manic episodes or what look like manic episodes do this where they don't sleep for a few days and they're like think they're the king or queen of the universe or whatever. <laughs> so like that's where it can get into sort of the problematic side. Not that that can't be a lot of fun, but it can also be kind of a mess if you're like that's you know how you suddenly are in your workaday office or whatever. Let me try to put this in really basic terms, which and, and this could be inaccurate. So please correct me. When mental chatter is decreased in whatever – through whatever modality we're using, meditation, breath work, whatever, when mental chatter comes down, very interesting experiences can arise. For some, yeah. That, but that's essentially what we're talking about. Yeah. And these interesting experiences can take a wide variety of forms. All of them functionally, we you know, well, there's the, the nice ones and the not nice ones, and there are maps for these things. And people have been describing these – for, again, thousands of years. And what's interesting is— you say is, maps, sorry to interrupt you again. Yeah, maps of the stages of meditation or ways to categorize these things or predict even what's going to happen next. So various in, uh, schools, religious schools, schools of Buddhism, schools of Hinduism, I don't know, maybe— Christianity, yes. Eastern Orthodox, Islam. They have described— Shamans. Yes, shamans, yes, uh -huh. with a little help from plants— uh, they have described what happens as you engage in these practices reliably sure. and somewhat predictably yeah. uh, over time. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you mean when you say maps. Yeah. Because I find that concept to be incredibly interesting. I that do as well. We, the term enlightenment, which I never really took seriously, frankly, before I got to know you, even though it had been brought up – I mean – I I took I have I I I'd, I'd hear my meditation teachers talking about it, and thought it was a ridiculous piece of baloney appended to an otherwise sensible system of mental exercises, <laughs> and then I started to, to get to know you, and we'll talk a little bit more about your story and why it matters in this context. But I always thought enlightenment was really ridiculous. But what one of the things that started to help me change my mind was actually you no know, this these. There are maps in, from all these cultures completely dislocated by both time and uh, geography. And language and culture. Yes, and who are describing similar things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are – you know, the maps diverge at key points and all of this. And, to some degree, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but all, yeah, that even makes it more interesting. True. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll stop rhapsodizing. But. No, that, those are all really important. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, okay, back to you. You're in your bedroom. 
witches, ray guns, etc. Then you fly or you have an out-of-body experience. It's uh, important to note you're not saying you actually flew, but you had the sensations of a mm-hmm. – Rising out of up out of my body, seeing my body there on the bed, floating through the wall, snapping back in all of a sudden. It didn't last. It was just a few seconds. So did cool. you become a teenage meditation teacher? What happened next? No, I had no idea what the hell had happened to me. I had no <laughs> language for this, no reference points for this. And then I hit the more challenging stages, which are called dissolution, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, and a not very well-named one called reobservation, which actually can be very challenging. So these – sorry, just, just in terms of the maps, you're now talking about the Theravada Buddhism yeah. insight, sure. uh, stages of insight map. And it says there are stages that lead up to the arising and passing mm-hmm. away. But after the arising passing away, which is fireworks-esque – for there, some, there, for some, for others, there are a bunch of other stages that, that are difficult. Naturally. Yes, and then they culminate, not culminate in, but they lead to, per the map, equanimity, where you, eventually, for some, yes, if you're lucky, yes, and then for some, if you're lucky, there's this very loaded term of nirvana. Actually, uh, well, it's a complicated word. I'm going to say stream entry or first path, um, and exactly how that relates to nirvana, I'll be happy to talk about if you want to. So there's two meanings of the word nirvana, at least, or nibbana, if you want to be Pali about it. Pali being um, the ancient language spoken by the Buddha. And nirvana being Sanskrit, which was came later. So, um, so nirvana is used at least two different ways, or nibbana, and one of them relates to a momentary um, disappearing of the sensate world and then a reappearing of the sensate world. Now, there are some sort of what I'll call Pali heads who will debate exactly the canonical use of this. I really don't want to get into that fight, but just acknowledge it exists. And um, so everything disappears when the mind has perfectly synchronized all of its attention on a moment and seen that moment vanish, basically, or seen that moment collapse and not be self, or seen something in the suffering of the way we um, solidify or grasp onto that moment, and then we let go of that, and it um, rushes away from us and disappears. So there are various ways we can enter this thing. And then reality disappears, just like frames have been taken out, and the reality reappears. There's nothing in the gap because it's not like there are you know, black frames there or clear frames there or any frames there. It's just the frames are just gone. So we lose like you know a quarter second or a second or something. Most of the time, it's not very long. And then we're back, and then we're different. And so that would be the first stage of awakening. The word nirvana or nibbana is also used to describe a much higher stage of awakening than that, which would be called arhatship in the Theravada. You can, you know, various other traditions would have their own words for it. But that is a permanent state where there's no longer the sense that there is a watcher, doer, knower, controller ever arising again. And this is just the unfolding moment as it is. Right. So there's no the, – the sense of self is deconstructed. In a very, very specific sense. So the sense of self has to be used very carefully, right? Because as soon as you use a term like that, then people are going to have all these meanings they might attribute to the word self. Um, Self might be the sense of being able to care for oneself or self might be the sense of perception or self. You know, people use these different words different ways. And so you've got to be very careful when you use a word like that because really in this context it's used in an incredibly specific sense and it's um and it's a sense that most people are not used to and not expecting and so it means that rather than there being a sense of a controller now there's just the sense of intentions arising naturally like the rest of the world unfolding naturally and then actions arising naturally from those intentions 
So there's a sense of naturalness or causality uh, without the sense that there's something separate or independent from that that's controlling. Weirdly enough, people are like, oh, I don't want to lose control. Actually, no, you never actually had control because the sense of self in this case is an illusion. So this just removing that illusion doesn't change function. In fact, it upgrades function because there's not the confusion about the fact of something that didn't actually exist. So it's actually an upgrade. It's better. Um, and there's also the sense of the watcher. So we generally think we're this sort of special point somewhere between our ears or in our throats or for some people in their hearts or chest somewhere that seems to be where we kind of are, the central watcher, knower, doer. When we say subject, that's where we kind of seem to be, the observer. And it turns out those are actually just a bunch more sensations happening on their own. And so you can actually, with enough training and insight, learn to notice that actually all of the sensations you thought were an observer, a controller, doer, are actually just more sensations and that sensations are just kind of aware where they are. They just kind of light up where they are naturally, always have. And so the sense of watcher is also an illusion with the removal of that, actually. There's this great sort of increased clarity because the brain is not having to pretend to filter everything through the central sort of linear mode of some, you know, poor schmo that's trying to like, oh, this and this and this and this and react to this and control this and be aware of this and remember this. Like that happens, those are some little sensations that are now just happening in a wide open sort of, you call it awake space of transience or something. Um, and so these are some of the ways in which it's not self in the way people generally think of themselves in sort of a psychological sense or a normal identity sense. It's a very specialized meaning. So anyway, go on. Yeah, it's not like you don't make dentist appointments or you don't feed yourself. Sure, right. You're right. Um, but to, just to... Just to uh, um, you you said a lot of stuff a couple minutes ago that I want to just make sure people aren't confused about. So uh, I'm going to try to explain it, but fact check me as, as I go here. Take time. So the 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 stages of insight again, and this is just one of the maps uh, in the in the Theravada school here. Not even all Theravadins uh, embrace this map, but the stages of insight uh, uh, in the old school Buddhism. Basically, you go through this process that you described of. Um, you do some beginning meditation, and if you're lucky or or not, you get this uh, arising and passing away stage, and then you go through some difficult stages. Then you hit equanimity, where you're cool with all that, and then maybe nirvana hits and uh, or arises or whatever. Am I close enough? Yeah, nirvana. Uh, it's like it's it's kind of one of these loaded words, like I, 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 cessation. <laughs> some people call it. Yeah, sure, cessation or fruition, which leads to I'm more comfortable calling first path or stream entry. Right, but so it's less, little, little more technical, a little less confusing. But people still don't know what that word means either. So maybe we should right. talk about that. <laughs> but but I guess what I'm trying to say is, you said first path, and so I think it's important to note that there are four times it's in, in, envisioned in the in the maps, as I understand them, that you hit first path and you become what's called a stream enterer. Then you go through this again or a version of this again, and then nirvana, cessation, or fruition happens again, and you become a uh, once returner. These Second path. Second path. Yep. Uh, the, the, the names are— Sakatagami. It, it, it's easy to get stuck on these names because it does sound like something out of Dungeons and Dragons. But That's true. Anyway, one of the reasons I like it, I love Dungeons and Dragons back I, in the day. I find that zero percent shocking, and I say that with affection, <laughs> since you are a self-described ultra geek. That's um, a fact. Uh, then the third path, uh, the third time this happens, you go through the cycle and Nirvana or whatever you want to call it uh, arises uh, or doesn't arise or whatever. Um, 
Uh, it's non-returner, and then the final time, arhant or arhat, depending on your pronunciation of choice, sure. which is uh, fourth path. Fourth path. Some people, some people, and this is where things get a little legalistic with you in particular. Some people think of that as full enlightenment, and in, in that um, negative emotions no longer arise. You no longer experience greed or hatred or confusion about the nature of reality. And so this is, I mean, again, I don't have, I've never experienced any of this stuff, but it is intriguing to me um, because I've, I've experienced maybe like tiny little tastes of the beginning. And I know a lot of people who I take seriously who have been, who are claimed to be further along in the path. And it's hard for me to, to sort of, uh, dismiss them. And you were a very key in my development and thinking a lot about these things, you getting to know you was very important. Well, thank the people who are kind enough to train me for that. Cause if I see far, it's because I stand on the shoulders of many, many giants. So let's just get back to your story because I think this will help clear things up for people. So after you had these experiences as a teenager, what happened next? Because as, as if I remember from our many, many years of just conversing, um, you then led a pretty conventional life. Yeah. So except I, I was a weird kid. I was a geeky kid. I was sort of a socially awkward kid. Maybe some people say I still am kind of a socially awkward kid sometimes. That's if fine. so, lovably. Sure. Thank you. It's kind of you. And so um, – and then this thing happened to me like six more times um, in the next 10 years where I would sort of get to equanimity, kind of fall back, cross the arising and passing away again. My consciousness would explode or some other weird thing happened. Like one time I was dancing and all of a sudden became this like vortex of blissful energy like as I was whirling around like a dervish and then it just kind of all died down. And By then, the way, in Sufi dancing, yes, another exactly. of these another contemplative cool. schools, dancing is right. the way to A way awaken. to get into ecstatic states and yes. then to awaken. And now I totally understand why. I'm like, yeah, go dervishes. Good. Um, and so that's where you find some of these interesting technologies because this happened to someone and they figured out, wow, if I do this thing, it leads to this thing sometimes. And they started teaching other people. And so these are, again, universal human experiences. Um, when so, I say conventional life, you you might have been a geeky kid, but you like went off to college. Yeah, you, sure. You but didn't, I didn't know what had happened. I had no – this. I mean all these strange experiences were just filed in a drawer of weird woo-woo. And I was raised kind of scientific materialistic. I was – you know. Uh, in school of science and math and into physics and chemistry. Your parents are scientists if I – Yeah. So yeah, they – they my mom did a PhD in biophysics at Yale on scholarships and was the first woman to do so. And my dad's got an MD from Yale and, you know, it was Yale, Yale – Harvard, Yale, Yale, Harvard. And, and so I was raised by people who were very scientific and sort of scientific materialist until my mom kind of went out there pretty far. That's kind of a whole other story. I'd prefer not to dwell on, but let's just say all of a sudden the wild end of the new age from my point of view as a child was suddenly now a part of her worldview and her scientist days were over. And I'll just kind of kind of throw that out there and <laughs> move along. <laughs> but the point is um, it was disorienting as a child and I didn't know what to make of that. And it didn't help me integrate any of the experiences that I had had because she wasn't really talking about that kind of stuff. She was talking about other things. And – it made me in some ways even kind of more like, yeah, woo-woo, no. Um, but then uh, I eventually ended up 
you know, running into some meditation people and um, doing some meditation. And all of a sudden they had maps for these stages. And then I was like, oh, my golly, this stuff has been well described. And they're describing my experience to a T. And how did they know? And Wait, can I stop you again? Goodness gracious. Because yeah. a lot of things happen in the between. So maybe I'll just take sure. them off. Right. If, if, if memory serves, you went off to college where again? UNC Chapel Hill. Okay. And then you were, by your own description, if I recall correctly, a you did audio for uh, high class bar bands. Yeah, I was a sound man for some dance bands, Motown soul bands, rock bands, and that was my living all through college. I had long hair and a sort of a weird, like somewhere between mullet and flock of seagulls hairdo, oh, and that's awesome. Was wearing ripped jeans and long black trench coats and playing guitar in bands, and and uh, so along the way, I met this guy Kenneth Folk, and this was. But but then you went back to med school, so well yeah. There's long. There's a whole lot in there, right? Okay, so, so the med school happens after you re- discover meditation. Yeah, it okay. happened eight years after college. So there was a gap. Okay, so the gap is where the meditation thing starts to come in. Yeah. All right. I'm just situating us in time. Carry on. So I met this guy Kenneth Folk, and he had also crossed something called the Arising and Passing Away. You, you've had him on, I assume. I have not had him on. Oh, I do want to have him on. Got to have him on. Yes, I know him uh, through you, and so yeah, he's a he's a uh, pretty well known meditation teacher. Uh, talks. You guys have a lot of overlap in the Venn diagrams and are old yeah, friends. I've known him since I was, you know, uh, I guess late freshman or something in college, and we lived together for almost a year in a crazy band house. And we would philosophize. He had also crossed the arising and passing away under different circumstances. and But we, neither of us knew what it was. And we were both sort of in this weird sort of half-in, half-out stage. But we didn't even know what that was. And we were kind of flailing around. And I was looking at T.S. Eliot. He was looking at Ken Wilber. And he was looking at Tolstoy. And I was looking at, you know, quantum mechanics and things like the dancing Wooly Masters and the new physics and how it relates to the mind and all that stuff. Anyway, and so we had all these conversations. And then finally he goes off to California and – ends up being convinced by a guy named Bill Hamilton that he needs to do some retreats and he does a bunch of retreats and he comes back and this is a guy I've lived in a band house with and been on the road with and I know him like you know people who you've had those kinds of experiences with and I was like, yeah, this is better. So then um, inspired by them, I started doing retreats with Christopher Titmus and Charter Rogel and Jose Rezig and um, Norman Feldman and Fred Van Allman and uh, Yvonne Weir and um, – uh, Sabani so Barzaga and people like that. Uh, um, uh, These are all well, reasonably well-known meditation teachers. We should probably put some information. Yeah, on Yeah, and and notes. going on retreats with them, and then at Bhavana Society, and then you know with Bhante Gunaratana and some of the monks in uh, his order, and end up starting you know got insights and and this stuff. got insights. Yeah, I mean, mean so. The interesting thing was every time I would go on retreat, I would cross the arising and passing away again, some dramatic, explosive, weird thing, and then I would hit dark night stages and just kind of wreck my life. That was the Oh, that's the other thing I forgot to mention. Whenever I would cross the A&P, a few weeks later, I would wreck my life. I would break up with my girlfriend. I would quit a graduate program or another you know, educational thing, or I would do something. Um, and uh, um, yeah, just kind of make sort of make a mess of things because I suddenly didn't care about those things. I didn't see them as that interesting or appealing or whatever. And the strong sort of negative emotions that would come up that I had no normalization for, hey, that's what happens after the ANP, wasn't happening because I didn't have the maps yet. And then eventually I got the maps when I went on a, my third retreat at the Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center and I learned Mahasi Sado noting, which I found very powerful. Okay, can you just tell us what that is? 
Yeah. And so, by the way, you, you also, when you say got insights. Yeah, you, I'll talk you, about that. Both of those. So it was on that retreat that I finally really understood like what I was doing and what was going on. And um, so I learned to note and noting is a, is a technique um, used in the Mahasi Sado tradition, but you also find it in like Shinzen Young and Chuladasa and in the Pali Canon and sutras like one by one as they occurred, which you can find in the middle length discourses of the Buddha number 111, I think. Anyway. Mahasi Sayada is a no longer living Burmese meditation master. Yes. And he was incredibly important at bringing meditation to lay people. And he got this crazy idea to take lay people and put them on these intensive retreat programs and watched a whole bunch of them wake up and get traditional insight stages and get traditional stages of awakening. Whereas before it was in many ways um, the monks were doing that, but lay people not nearly so much. And so this happened in Burma in sort of the middle of the 20th century. And then some people started, Westerners started going over and doing these things and they started waking up and getting insights. And he also came to the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And he taught there three months in like 1980 or 81 or something, somewhere around there. And all of a sudden they got a vastly higher proportion of stream enterers than they had ever had. And they were like, whoa, this is pretty cool. And they've been teaching noting or some variant of it for their three month ever since because they were impressed at, at its ability to get people in touch with what's going on. It's a very simple technique. You just like note rising, rising, falling, falling for the breath or lifting, moving, placing or whatever for the feet or wandering for the mind or, you know, seeing, hearing, thinking, you know, and exactly which notes you use and how you use them, you know, not a you know, not something to get, you know, too neurotic about. And you can find instructions in this in his very simple and wonderful book, Practical Insight Meditation, my favorite Dharma book of all time. By, by, by Mahasi Saida. Yes. And this strangely simple technique creates in some people who do it well in high enough dose some very, very powerful effects that were kind of surprising to me. My body was shaking and sniffing and I was like sweating and seeing bizarre things and having weird sensations pour through my body. And then I was like, felt like I was like sinking through the floor into narcotic strange syrup where everything was going like freeze frame flashing. And I'm like, what the hell? Like this is like what I went through as a kid, but even weirder, like and more powerful because I'm now I'm doing it on retreat with this very – very powerful technique. And then I've been able to sit for like four hours and now I can barely sit for five minutes without unbelievable restlessness and irritation and sense of like, ah, just existential horribleness, like welling up. And I'm like, what the heck? And then the old monk, seeing me have gotten to a stage that was worthy to give a little more information to, played this old scratchy tape of this old Burmese monk with a very thick accent describing the stages of insight except he, and you could tell this tape had been played like a thousand times on this little cassette recorder, and yet he described in order everything I had gone through in sequence with a freakish level of detail and stuff that I thought was just my own weird body doing weird stuff, like I've never heard of this stuff. And all of a sudden, they not only do they know about it, but they can predict it and describe it, and clearly everybody else seems to go through something like this too, or they wouldn't play this tape. And... It convinced me that I was in a stage called reobservation, which could be a very challenging stage for some, but that right after it was equanimity. And if I just have faith in the tradition, the technique, and just note whatever's going on, no matter how bad it is, that I can maybe get through this. And that's what happens. And all of a sudden, um, from intense restlessness and irritation in my mind, feeling like a crazy hive of bees, I buckle down and sort of gather my resources and note through the horrible and all of a sudden everything opens up and I'm this sort of weird flowing space of equanimity and things are amazing. And then the retreat ends. (laughs) 
And then I fall back into the dark night and kind of wreck my life and kind of mess up my relationship with my first wife. And I um, kind of mess up the service project that I'm working with in Bodh Gaya, India at the time. And I cancel all my medical school interviews because I now don't care anything about going to medical school. I'd gotten all these great interviews at some really great schools. And I cancel all that and I sell nearly everything I own and I decide I'm going to go on a, you know, go on some long retreat or whatever. And then I go on my then. Um, I So I've got the maps from that source and I, and I got the maps from another source from Practical Insight Meditation, which has them. And then I found them in a book called the Vasudhi Maga and later would find them in books called the Vimudhi Maga, which are books you can find. Ancient Buddhist. Yeah, these are text. old Buddhist commentarial texts. And actually the stages of insight come from before that. They're canonical. They come from something called the Abhidhamma, which is one of the three baskets of what's called the Tipitaka or three baskets, three big books, the Code of Conduct for Monks. The suttas and the Abhidhamma, which is sort of a section on analysis and summary and anyway. And so it turns out these insight stages are well described and old and got some help. And then on my next retreat, not only did I know what to do, but I knew what was expected. So it didn't throw me this time. I wasn't confused by it and I could just practice. And by this point, um, I wanted nothing else in the world than stream entry. Um, Again, the first experience of what you don't like to call nirvana. Sure, you can call it nirvana. That's fine. Just just realize it's a loaded word with a lot of weird baggage on it, a lot Uh, of complicated cultural uh, stuff. Look, if people have made it this far, they're okay with weird. I hope so. Anyway, yeah, it's true. Good point. So, not referring to you. I'm referring. Well, to the no, I'm, I'm kind of weird. That's okay. I'm right. I'm, I'm a bit of an odd duckling. That's true. That's okay. Right. I'm not claiming to be normal. Um, not that I would even know what that word meant, but you know what you know what I mean. Somehow. So anyway, so I got on this retreat, and now I know what to do. And I don't want anything else in the world. I have no other concerns. I don't care if I break my brain. I don't care if I go crazy. I don't care about anything else. So I have really no hindrances. All I want to do is note and notice and pay attention. And figure this thing out. And by the way, you're in your 20s here. Yeah, I'm in my 20s. Um, so An intense young man in his 20s on, yeah, on a quest. This is 1996 at the Thai monastery in Bodh Gaya, sitting with Christopher Titmus and his fine crew of other great teachers again. And um, they were really nice. And what's interesting is Christopher is totally non-mappy because he's coming from this Thai forest. So he was a nice counterbalance to my mappiness. So, okay, I just want to describe some terms there. The Thai forest tradition, also part of Theravada Buddhism, which is the old school of Buddhism. Yeah. But they are not – they are much more relaxed for the most part, as, as I understand it, mm. about these maps. Yeah, they're generally not as mappy and there are some mappy. interesting historical reasons for that. Uh, it's not like all – everybody in Thailand or Thai forest doesn't like the maps or use them. They know about them, right? They, these people are – a lot of – particularly the monastics are very good scholars – they're in the commentaries, um, but they're coming from a tradition that actually has some interesting sort of Vajrayana and Mahayana influences. Those are later schools of Buddhism. Later schools of Buddhism. And that, and it's interesting, the history of Thailand, how this came down. In the late 1800s, there was a Thai king that sort of decided, we're going to kind of sort of clean up and homogenize Buddhism and make it all Theravada. And we're going to kind of strip out some more Vajrayana and Mahayana elements from it. But they never really went away. I mean, he, they just sort of called it something different. But so... Um, because they had all three schools of Buddhism there, uh, what they have is sort of this interesting mixture, which is cool. Like I got a lot out of sitting with, you know, Christopher Titmus is an ex-Thai forest monk and, you know, being influenced by other Thai forest people like the books of Achan Cha, for example, who trained a lot of the IMS um, teachers and uh, people. So anyway, so it was nice to be on this retreat with simultaneously the powerful technology of Mahasi 
good maps, teachers who also were able to see things that were not the maps and emphasize those things as sort of a counterbalance. And it just turned – and after my year of serv- volunteer service in India where I had been working in street clinics in Calcutta and Mother Teresa's Home for the Dying and Destitute and this rural health education sort of project in Bodh Gaya, then like um, – and India had done whatever India does, which had stripped a tremendous amount away from me and kind of broken me down. That's a whole other story. Spending a year in India um, can do that to you. It's an amazing country, but wow. Um, some growth happened. And so that combination just made me, I guess, apparently ripe for really just cutting through delusion because I didn't care about anything else other than doing that. I had no other agendas, nothing else in my mind I wanted, and I just went straight for it. And so six days in, all of a sudden, boom, my mind manages to synchronize and disappear and reappear. I'd gone through the stages of insight again. They were challenging, but I knew how to handle them because I'd been through them a lot of times before in daily life and on retreats. And so... Now that I had the normalization, the name, somehow that helped me just be with them because I was like, this is normal. This is normal. I can just practice. I don't have to worry that this is weird or I don't have to be confused by it. I can just practice. And so I just practiced. And the techniques that are purported to produce insight, weirdly enough, produced insight. Okay. Insight. I asked you this before. What do you mean by insight? So insight in the Buddhist technical sense is a very specialized meaning of insight, and it means an appreciation of the three characteristics. Now, other people could go into what insight means. You could also say, you know, and I'll talk about the three characteristics. Other people might say it means insight into dependent origination or insight into suffering. Um, those are all true, and so I'll talk about those. So the three characteristics, I'm very Theravadini, or insight into emptiness is how a lot of Mahayana or Vajrayana people or Zen people might put it, or insight into shunyata is very other words for the same thing. Okay, fine. Um, pick your language, whatever language you like. I'm comfortable with all that language as long as people know what they mean. But I'm going to go kind of old school Theravada because that's kind of my home turf, not that I haven't trained in a bunch of other schools I have. But impermanence. So to actually see one sensate reality this moment is, to this moment. Is the first of the three. Arise years. and vanish. This is the first of the three truths. That's right. So to, to actually physically perceive sounds to no, arise sorry, and vanish. Sorry, not three jewels, the three characteristics. Yeah, three characteristics. Yes. So to, um, to perceive directly for oneself, not as a theoretical concept, but bu- 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 that one's physical sensations vibrate, arise, vanish, pulse. One's mental sensations, thoughts, intentions, memories, arise and vanish. One's uh, sounds one hears arise and vanish. But at a very fine-grained level, we're actually talking multiple times a second. So, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25, which sounds like, oh, my golly, I could never perceive that, except you can to even listen to me speaking at this incredible rate, which I realize I talk fast. And I'm sorry about, by the way, apologize if I talk fast. I kind of do. I'm sort of hypomanic just the way I was born. Um, I work with it as best I can. So <laughs> even to understand me saying that sentence, you have to un- understand a lot of things very quickly per second. To type, a lot of you, I'm sure, are pretty good typers. Well, you type many keystrokes per second. And to be able to do that, you have to be able to perceive a lot of things per second. But if you actually notice, wow, I can perceive the arising and vanishing of the sensations of each keystroke, the intention to type a key, whatever letter I'm going to hit, while you're keeping track of what it is those letters are leading towards, a sentence or a meaning or something you're trying to convey, while listening to the sound of the clicks and feeling your body and all of that, you're experiencing many, many sensations per second. And just by noticing that fact clearly, there's a way to gain insight. And so driving, think about just to turn like a car for one second of turning a car, like how many little things you have to calibrate in the lane around you and the steering wheel and exactly how fast you're turning and what you're turning towards and what's in front of you. It might, it might be to the right or left of you. It might be, who might be about to cross the street 
or whatever, there's a tremendous amount of data pouring in. So our, our minds have this incredible re- level of resolution that we use all the time to do things like understand my hypomanic presentation. But um, uh, if we turn that towards actually just noticing the arising and vanishing of those sensations themselves, then insight can result. And insight can change you. It can, ch- it can up the resolution of your brain. It can increase the ability to actually just perceive the fact that your thoughts come and go really rapidly. Your physical sensations come and go. This has, can have powerful emotional consequences. Um, just to notice that thoughts are these little fleeting blips of stuff arising and vanishing, that your bodily sensations of fear or you know, sadness are a lot of little sensations. And again, got to be careful with spiritual bypassing here. That's sort of a whole other topic. But it can give people a wait, sense wait, 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 wait. of clarity. Spiritual bypassing, just now that you've cool. mentioned it. Just... Sorry. So spiritual bypassing is where you try to use meditation techniques that kind of ignore the content of experience in favor of just noticing like sensations arising and vanishing or just getting into bliss or getting very quiet. So there is this debate about how much one should spend looking at one's emotions and one's issues and one's shadow sides versus just noticing that what I would call the true nature of just bare sensate experience. And I think we have to do both, but sometimes it's easier to do one and then do the other. They don't tend to mix well. So when you're doing emotional work, look at emotions as emotions. Don't try to just pick them apart into little meaningless blips of data. And when doing insight practices, pick your emotions apart into little meaningless blips of impermanent data. And so, and learn when to do one or the other. And I think we need both of them to grow well as people and be reasonable, sane, hopefully well-integrated people. Um, but when practicing what I would think of as sort of more pure insight practice, it's kind of a loaded term, but forgive me. Um, you just notice lots of little sensations make up your experience. They come and go and they come and go on their own. So what's interesting is anybody who's ever sat down to meditate, this is the next characteristic. I'll just, well, actually it's the third one, but um, no self or not self. Anybody who's ever sat down to meditate for even a few minutes, I'm sure you have noticed that trying to get your mind to do what you want it to do at all times is nearly impossible, or it seems so. And all these thoughts seem to be arising out of your control. Actually, yeah, that's insight. That's insight number one. This reality is not in your control. That's true. And it appears that you control a little bit of it, but that's actually illusory. Even that little bit of control you think you have If you really pay attention clearly enough and get intentions clearly enough um, as part of your awareness to notice the rise and vanish, you will see them arise causally just like everything else arises causally. Can I direct my thoughts? Naturally. So initially, we start with the assumption that we kind of can, right? So Buddhism has three main trainings, morality, concentration, or basic meditation skills, and then insight. So sila, samadhi, and panya, or shila, you know, shamatha, prajna, or however you want to phrase, whatever kind of Pali or Sanskrit words you want to use. But what they mean is morality. When training in morality or or good behavior, good speech, good action, good livelihood, we assume that we are in control. We assume we can make choices. We assume that we can determine what's going on, right? We assume that we can decide to eat that apple or eat that pint of ice cream or whatever it is. We can, you know, we can try to navigate in this world and um, figure out what our you know, what consequences our actions led to and hopefully gain wisdom from those and use that as a feedback mechanism to inform our decisions. We assume decision-making capacity and agency. Okay, and even when training in sort of concentration practice, which is kind of a loaded term and is really a, a sophisticated, nuanced concept, but we assume that we can try to quiet our minds, that we can try to stay still, 
that we can try to pay attention, that we can try to notice what's going on, that we can try to follow a technique if we wish, or that we can try to just be open to whatever experience arises, that we can note, that we can follow our breath, that we can notice a positive mind state when it arises and try to embrace it and cultivate more of it. We can notice uh, a not very nice or seemingly unskillful or unpleasant mind state when it arises and try to figure out how to have less of those if that's what we're trying to do. And so again, this training assumes choice and it assumes agency and it's a relatively good assumption, right? And that's how most of us live most of our lives and that's great. However, we then in insight practice do this weird thing where we get like we, we walk up to this edge and we walk up to this edge with the sense of agency, with the sense of control, with the sense of this, but then we say, with a sense of agency and control, or illusion of control, really, I'm going to try to see that the sense of control is an illusion. <laughs> and I'm going to tune intentionally, with a sense of illusion of agency, tune my attention to this fact that that is an illusion and that intentions arise on their own, causally, naturally, like all other natural, lawful things unfolding in this world. And so we take the intention and direct it to seeing intentions arise on their own. And so that's what we call insight. And so that's the sort of weird paradox of Buddhism that we walk. But we start with a sense of agency, and that's what we have to work with, and that's what we use to actually deconstruct that fundamental illusion. You talked about the emotional benefits of, of the insight into impermanence. In other words, it can be emotionally liberating to yes. know that sadness may arise, but it will also pass. Um, if, sure. Sure. What is the what are the emotional benefits of seeing that the self, as we conventionally understand it, is an illusion? Yeah, so many. Um, okay, so there's this sense that most people have that they're this poor linear thing that's trying to control things, to do things, to be things, to um, know things, to make decisions, to navigate in this world, and. Um, that is an inherently painful illusion because the only thing that we have an experience to base a self out of is all this changing stuff. And it turns out that the process of trying to create a stable sense of self out of an intrinsically incredibly unstable experience, right? Our moment to moment, there's like, okay, that my left shoulder is kind of the same sensations as it was before, but it really isn't exactly. And those sensations actually are kind of different. My head's kind of the same sensations it was before, but actually they're new, fresh sensations that are changing all the time. Those thoughts are kind of like maybe some thoughts that I had before, but they're actually different thoughts. Those feelings that are kind of like feelings I've had before are actually totally new, fresh, different feelings. And so it turns out that the mental process of having to constantly figure out which of these things is the new us arising and vanishing moment to moment is kind of like a virus on your computer. It just takes up all this processing time, and it turns out it didn't need to do it anyway and actually just makes the whole thing not as clear because it's constantly trying to make permanent things that are not permanent, which is an arduous task and one doomed to failure, but it's a, the system gets pretty good at it. And so that's painful, and it turns out that there's this other weird thing that then happens with pleasure and pain. So the weird thing is pleasure arises somewhere, let's say, but there's this split-off sense of self. We believe we're somewhere in our head, and let's say the pleasure is in our hand. Let's say I put like on a new, really soft glove or something, and it just felt nice on my hand. Well, the weird thing is you now have the central observer that thinks its sensations here are the pleasure or the knowledge of the pleasure or the owner of the pleasure. Well, that's not true. 
the sensations of pleasure might be in your hand at the nice soft glove or the, you know, the fuzzy mitten or the, you know, whatever, pick some nice thing that is sort of distant from your head that feels nice. You can use your imagination. Um, and so thanks. Um, and, uh, there's a problem now because this thing that's in the middle of our heads that thinks it's really the observer, controller, knower-doer now is distant from the things that are pleasant. And so it actually literally strains, literally like it tries to bend itself and figure out a way to get itself to be closer to that thing. And that bending forward is actually craving. It also gets very confused when the mental sensations going on around your head, most of which are not pleasant, are not pleasant, but that's most of the sensations you're paying attention to. Because there's this confusion where you think these sensations in the middle of your head are actually observing. No, they aren't. And so most of what you experience is not the pleasant sensation. It's all this other sort of sensations around your head somewhere, wherever you think the observer is, that are nothing like the pleasant sensation, that are now trying to get towards the pleasant sensation, that are trying to figure out how experientially to get the pleasant sensation to last. They're afraid the pleasant sensation is going to leave. And so – but – they're barely actually most of attention is not on the pleasant sensations themselves. So like people eat a tasty meal and they might notice the first bite or two are tasty. And then after that, they're thinking about the meal or distracted. They're not actually enjoying the nice meal you just spent all this money on, particularly if in New York where food prices are kind of high, but you have some great restaurants. Um, and so, but like most of your money is wasted because your attention was not there because it's going through this weird sort of, it's propping up you know, this weird sense of illusory thing. A similar thing happens with pain, right? So you might have some painful sensations. Like let's say I stub my toe. The actual sensations of stubbing my toe are very limited in space. They might be very strong. Okay, fine. I don't like stubbing my toe. It hurts. Um, but then there's this whole funny thing of like the, the internal mind like tries to shut off the sensations of the toe because it imagines it's the experience right up here. It tries to ignore it. It's trying to like shut down. It's trying to like get away from it's trying to like literally like get the head away from like get the sense of observer away from when these are just more sensations up here and those are just sensations in your toe and even long after the sensations of the toe have kind of disappeared there may be this oh my golly i stubbed my toe and all this reactive stuff that's going on from this something up in the head that is still responding to its own memory of the stubbing the toe its own images of stubbing the toe none of which are the stubbed toe and so i could construct all kinds of other examples but in these same kinds of ways um, we have these this bizarre reactive thing that we then set up, which is illusory and didn't need to happen. The sensations of the toe could just be the sensations of the toe known by themselves where they were, no bigger or smaller or more intense without all of the complicated elaboration. Same thing with the pleasant sensations on the hand. If you put on you know the nice mitten or whatever, it just feels nice where it is. It was what it was. It was felt directly and experienced clearly, and then it disappeared. But the whole thing, oh, my God, I've got to get closer to it. I've got to make it last. And most of the time, I'm not even paying attention to it anyway. So I'm kind of missing it. But like, ah, like that whole thing, it turns out it doesn't need to happen. And it's just like a, a virus in the system or whatever that you can – insight practices are designed to actually like be you know, some antivirus program that actually clears it out and resets the system. And now you, the system can just experience things where they are naturally, clearly happening. And you don't have to get this sense that you're processing everything through this limited, limited central system thing. Well said. Let me just reset for the conversation. It's just so you, thank you I, for my long rant, by the way. No, I, I podcasts are about long rants. So okay, thank you. You're in a, you're in a safe place for that. Um, 
We were talking about your experiences uh, on this retreat where you experienced stream entry, and I interrupted that by asking you about the insights, and you started talking about the three characteristics. You have now covered – and the three characteristics are the three characteristics of reality yeah. uh, the, the, that make up every moment of our lives. Uh, the first was impermanence. The third was no self or not self or selflessness. And the, the second, take it away. So that actually I was just talking about the second one, but I forgot to mention that I was talking about the second one. So that's suffering. So the, the suffering characteristic is curious because from an insight point of view, it's actually specifically applied to the mind that is laboring under the false illusion that there is this knower, doer, watcher, controller that's somewhere in the center of things that's then relating to these things in this way that causes additional suffering. So it's this weird tension in the illusion of the observer that's trying to figure out its relationship to things or even what it is. And it turns out those processes are painful, intrinsically painful. It's like sort of a vague nausea or like a headache you didn't even know you had until suddenly it went away. It's like some irritating background noise that you had kind of forgotten was ever there until all of a sudden it stops and you're like, oh my golly, like thank God that noise I didn't even really know to pay attention to anymore was is not happening anymore. And so it's very freeing. And this happens at levels. So in the Theravada maps, sort of by levels, though there can be sort of jumps and variants. I don't want to go into the complexities of the map. That could be an hour-long conversation. But let's just go with sort of standard simplified theory. And there are these levels where you sort of take a layer of mind. And initially for stream entry, it's kind of a superficial layer of mind, but it's an important one. And you kind of remove that sense of illusion and confusion from it. And so you kind of remove in some way that initially is not that obvious for a lot of people, kind of that layer of suffering. But there are deeper layers of identification and that sort of creating a self-observer, agent-watcher-controller process. There are deeper levels of that, deeper layers of mind that then with further cycles through the stages of insight at higher levels, you can get those layers too and do the same thing. And eventually you run out of layers. Now, how many layers there might be or how many cycles you might go through, that's a whole complicated topic. And it's not, it's very rarely four. It's usually Anyway, some other, you know, various numbers. The numbers aren't important. But the fact that eventually you can run out of layers and suddenly you really have actually hardwired the brain such that now it automatically perceives things the way they actually are. And so this is what the Tibetans would, you know, cause, you know, you know so like sort of auto things auto-liberating or that wisdom and emptiness arise together or there are all these different words for it. The Theravadans would call it arhatship or my... One of my favorite suttas called the Bihia of the Bark Cloth Sutta. They say, in the seeing is just the seen. In the hearing is just the heard. In the thinking is just the thought. In the physical sensations are just the physical sensations. Meaning no longer is in these things the sense of a separate watcher, doer, knower, controller. They're just arising naturally on their own. And this is literally a doable thing. And this is what insight practices lead to. And the great thing that the Buddha you know, says he discovered people had probably done it before that too, but whatever. Anyway, but he said, I, you know, show the, the, the way to Nibbana, to this insight. And so this is actually a doable thing. And it's, it's not weird that it's doable. Like if you like, it's just a trainable skill from my point of view. And people don't like that. Oh, it's this deep spiritual journey. Oh, it's more than that. Yeah. Okay. It is. But it's also a trainable, learnable skill, just like learning to play the piano or learning to do whatever, or, um, all kinds of skills we learn all the time. If you spend enough time paying attention to the fact that things are impermanent, eventually you automatically notice things are impermanent. So it's kind of like reading. Like when you, we first start to learn to read, you know, A, B, 
C, D. We have to think about what the letters are. And then we start putting them together into words, and that takes all this thought, and it's complicated. But now, if you, when you learn to read, you see a word, and it auto-translates to meaning. I don't have to look at the ABC News thing, you know, we're 10% happier with Dan Harris thing on your wall. Yes. I'm looking at the side on the wall here in the studio. I don't need to think about what the one is or the zero or the percent. It auto-translates to meaning directly. And the same way as learning to read or learning to type, you know, where like a good typer isn't thinking about each keystroke they're making. They just kind of know what they want to say and their fingers make them say it. In that same sort of automatic way, this can be hardwired. And if you practice insight, practice well enough and long enough, this is a learnable thing. And things just auto-translate to empty, auto-translate to impermanent, auto-translate to not-self, auto-translate to causal, auto-translate to clear. And so it's just another thing like that. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. Okay, so... Uh, I want to just see if I can recap a little bit of your personal chronology to get to uh, something uh, important to discuss, and you stop me if you want. But if if memory serves, again, because I've known you for a couple of years now, we've talked about your life and, and my life a bunch in our conversations over the years. Yeah. If memory serves, <laughs> you had this retreat where you experienced stream entry, went off and did many other retreats, and, and yeah. in the ensuing years, you also went and got your medical degree um, and then at some point, you actually hit second path, third path, and yeah. you believe fourth path. I do. And uh, now this – then you did something extremely controversial, which is you went out and said, I uh, I hit fourth path. I am an arhat, which – or arhat, however yeah. you want to pronounce it. There's arguments about that too. One of the things I love about enlightenment, which is supposed to be this wonderful, soft – thing is that as soon as you start talking about enlightenment, you're in an argument That's because right. everybody disagrees about even even how to pronounce the various words. Um, yeah. But anyway, you went out and talked about the fact that you had hit fourth path or Arhantship and wrote a book by Daniel Ingram, the Arhant yeah. or Arhat, uh, and people went bonkers in the Buddhist world. Um, so t- tell me uh, about where to start. Tell me about the well. Let's start with tell me about the moment that you believe you hit that fourth path, and then we'll go from there. Okay, so at this point, uh, this is April uh, retreat, twenty one days, Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center. I think of myself as a late anagami at this point, and I'm anagami is on his third path, third so, path, the, and the, the non returner, also known as non returner. Yeah, and the reason I think that is because I've gone through a number of cycles of insight, where you know I went through rising and passing away to dark nights, to equanimity, to things disappeared and reappeared. And then my brain was really different and operated really differently. And I went through a number of cycles of that. And at this point, reality is so much different from when I started at baseline that it's like, it feels like it's like 95 to 98% there. The vast, what does that even mean? So when you say reality is, so, is... So what I mean is, Everything just seems luminously clear where it is, almost. Wait, in your daily life or on retreat? Walking around all the time. This is a, these are baseline shifts. These, it feel, felt like switches had flipped in my brain, and now I'm walking around in a very, very different experience of reality than I had before. And the vast majority of it, rather than seeming like it's being known, done, or controlled by some little central watcher, seems aware where it is, like I'm picking up my hat. And the hat... The sensations He's of the literally hat, picking up his hat seem to be knowing themselves where the hat is. 
and the sensations of my hand holding the hat or the sensations are just there knowing themselves very in this very direct, clear way. And they almost everything seems to just be happening on its own naturally, the sense that there really is, you know, a, 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 an agent, a free will is almost entirely gone. But then like there's – And yet you're functional in the world? Yeah, very functional. I, I was way more functional. I, I think I would have been a mess in medical school before had I not um, – done this. But I managed to graduate from medical school a semester early, kind of an unusual accomplishment. I would say that's pretty highly functional. I think I'm the only person who's ever done that at UNC Medical School as far as I know. They were all shocked when I managed to do it. And um, so, and then I took the time off to travel around the world. And part of traveling around the world was I wanted to go on retreat. And so I went on retreat because I hadn't had much retreat time in medical school at all. And so I go on a retreat, and I think of myself as very functional at this point. You know, obviously, I'm able to get an MD. And I um, go on this retreat, and I've also got access to all this jhanic stuff. So I can do all these unusual – and jhanas are like these deep concentration states where your mind can get very tra- blissful or rapturous or tranquil or equanimous or spacious or formless or go into these unusual experiences. And I've learned how to do all those things because, you know, I've read some good books and studied with some good people and – you know, got some good training um, and seem to have some sort of talent for these things. And it turns out stream, enter, stream entry makes this a lot easier for a lot of people to get into these deeper states, which is one of the cool benefits of it for some, not everybody. And so – and I did a lot of daily practice. But I've got all these skills and they're not it. They're almost it, right? They're they're very satisfying. They're very impressive to me. I'm – you know, I – I have a pride thing. It's true. I have a little bit of an arrogance thing. It's true. I admit that. And I'm pretty impressed with my skills and talents. Um, And I'm in my early 30s and I feel like I've done all these things. But yet there's this sense that it is not the last – it is not the thing you want. All these things are cool, but it's not the thing I want. There's something wrong. At the center of it, there is a problem. There's still like this annoying, not like unbelievably hard to track sense of subtle something that still wants to own this do this, be this, control this, something. And it's maddening. And it gets more and more maddening as I get more and more disenchanted with all of my skills, abilities, and whatever else I have attained. So finally, I go on this retreat with this incredibly good meditation teacher, a guy named Saito Upandita Jr., to distinguish him from the Saito Upandita Sr., who is one of Mahasi Saito's chief disciples and lineage transmitter guys who's written some good books that you should look up. Anyway, the point is that um, – but he's sort of a younger um, Mahasi Saito abbot of a monastery, but also very, very impressive. And he's the first meditation teacher I've spoken with who, when I presented all of my skills and abilities and my assessment of things, was just like, yeah, 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 okay, fine. And by the way, this – and he would sit there and I would describe all my wild experiences and I was getting into these formless realms and doing even more exotic things like attaining the state called Naroda Samapati, which is the cessation of perception feeling where you kind of put yourself into like a coma. It's a very unusual thing to be able to do. I, I'm kind of simplifying. But um, anyway, and he would listen to all this wild stuff and, and, and he would just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but just this, so nice, anytime. And he would just hold his hands out wide and hold the space. And it was just like, I know he gets it and I know I don't. And that is like the most unbelievably maddening but inspiring thing all at the same time. 
And then after a week of me like floundering around doing all this impressive stuff, he finally says, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at some point, you're going to get your concentration strong. And I'm like, (laughs) 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 and I'm simultaneously like really like kind of offended because I'm like, I think I have pretty strong concentration, but I'm like, but clearly it's not strong enough to understand what he's talking about because I can see, I can feel viscerally. He knows something I don't and he's got something to teach me. And I say, okay, I'm going to listen. So I go back to really Theravadan basics, three characteristics, six sense doors, impermanence, suffering, and no self. And six sense doors is the ordinary, you know, seeing, hearing, feeling, et cetera. But I decide to do it with like, I was like, okay, what could be stronger concentration than this? I say 100% capture. I'm going to go for 100% capture. I'm not going to let a single sensation of any size, including the sensations of space, consciousness, memory, mental impressions, intentions, Sights, sounds, physical sensations, not a single one arise and vanish without me perceiving it to arise and vanish on its own and see the suffering in it. This is an incredibly crazy thing to sort of attempt from a certain point of view, but I don't care at this point. I'm sick to death of whatever I have. I'm willing to tear it all to shreds and I'm willing to go back to basics. And I take my relatively hypomanic sort of type A achiever mind and turn it to this task and I start shredding my reality. And I start trying to literally see the beginning and end of every single sensation, which ends up being like, you know, it's like mind has to become this crazy, like machine gun like thing that dances into the wide void. But it's like a three dimensional spacious machine gun. I don't even know how to explain that. And at some point you start feeling like, okay, yeah, but it's not fast enough. It's not clear enough. It's not complete enough. It's not wide enough. It's not powerful enough. It's not concentrated enough. And then like, what else have I got? What else? How, how, how can I do this? So I'm like and I'm ramping up in the power in this gonzo crazy sort of way and things are getting really wild. So at this point, like my reality is like dissolving into vortices with every step I take in walking meditation. It's like, uh, uh, anyway, I I won't bother to describe it all. The point is stuff's getting weird. (laughs) And eventually after a week of this and like pushing it with every single thing I have, I'm totally exhausted. And at this point, insight cycles had been whipping through like, Sometimes every few minutes, sometimes like, you know, every 10 seconds. I mean, it's getting crazy. And reality has been strobing and disappearing and reappearing and vanishing and reconfiguring and fluxing and flashing to the point that literally I'm walking around the room, seeing like the room as if it's like a strobe light vortex, insane maelstrom of like psychedelic crazy. Okay, so I've done something pretty unusual to my brain at this point. And finally, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm sick. I'm out. I'm exhausted. That's all I have. That's every single thing I've got. If, if it takes more than that, I, I don't have it. And I cut the power. It's like early afternoon um, towards the end of the second week of the retreat. And I start walking across the meditation hall. And there's if you ever go to Malaysian Buddhist meditation, on the second floor, there's like this station there. I don't know if it's still there, where they had like the Asian version of Tang and some sort of hot chocolatey drinks that you could drink if you want to. I'm like, I'm just going to replenish my sugar stores and take a pause. And then I noticed that my mind went through what I'd call suffering door fruition, which is where reality gets torn away from you. And the suffering door fruition is kind of weird because this is the one where like when they're talking about like you finally realize the hot coal you're grasping and then you let it go. This is what that metaphor is talking about. So like it feels like reality is torn away from you. It feels kind of like you die almost like like you're not supposed to use the word soul in Buddhism, but it literally feels like your soul is like ripped out of your chest or something. Anyway, forgive me, traditional Buddhists for using that word. So 
but that's kind of what the feeling is like, right? And so, and then everything disappears and reappears. Except I went through a suffering door fruition, and there was no suffering in it. It just felt clean, clear. There was no sense of violation of a center point. There was no sense of anything that anything was ripped away from. There was no sense of that kind of creepy, violating feeling that happens when that happens. I was like, wait, because I've been through you know thousands of these things by this point. I know them well, and I'm kind of an obsessive microphenomenologist. So like microphenomenologist meaning I pay attention to all little blips and flutters and changes and shifts and really see if I can see exactly what's going on in kind of an obsessive way. And this was totally different. I was like, whoa, suffering door fruition with that. And then my mind flips over and everything's just as it is. Everything. That annoying sense of doer, watcher, controller, knower, beer that had somehow been in the background that I couldn't find despite years of trying was gone and everything was just clear and everything was just happening on its own and the cycles of insight could happen perfectly naturally. They did not matter. This was not about them. And there was just this amazing, straightforward clarity to everything. And so I went and reported this to Saito Upandita Jr. And he's like, his eyes are lighting up and you can like see, like he's usually really stoic, right? And he's like, and finally, he, he, um, there's only three people in the room. There's like me and this um, uh, 10 precept sort of equivalent, uh, not quite none, but um, she's so, sort of semi-monastic in white and him. And he points at her and he's wearing white. She's wearing white. Yeah. yeah so um, and says, oh, my golly, did you hear? No, he didn't say, oh, my golly. He said, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? And his eyes are like lighting up like because I'm like talking about what had just happened. And I was like, yeah, everything just comes and goes, and that's fine, and this is just fine, and it doesn't, like, everything is it equally. Every single thing has always been it. And he's like, yeah, he can tell. He's like, really, like, yay. And even though he's trying to be stoic, it's really funny. So um, so that was the thing. And then there's there's more out past that I could go into, but it, the literal point is through very straightforward techniques and simple assumptions, three characteristics, six sense doors, done well, you literally can hardwire these understandings into your brain. And that's the important message for anybody listening. Not that some guy on a podcast is like, you know, blowing his horn or whatever. The most important thing for you is if for some strange reason you feel inspired to go through all the weirdness that can sometimes occur and dedicate that level of resource to it, which who knows how much that might be. I know some people who did it in way less time than me, um, way more easily. So it doesn't need to be this big project in the same way it was for me. For some it is. For some it takes longer. For some it's much harder. I don't know. I'm somewhere in the middle, I think, actually, as this goes. Um, but it's doable and you can do this if you decide and or you know something in the middle stages of insight or paths or whatever. These are doable things and I have plenty of friends who have various paths and path attainments. And if you hold out a shingle that says, hey, I have path attainments, before you know it, there are all these other people who come out of the woodwork and are like, yeah, I can't talk about this thing, but can I talk about it with you and we can be friends? And suddenly you're in this cool network of people who are you know, interested in these kinds of mental transformations or whatever you want to call them. Well, so that's what you decided to do, to, to put out a shingle, to write this book, yeah. give it away. Sure. Uh, you can buy it, but you also gave it away on your website yeah. as a PDF. Yep. That's how I did it. Mm -hmm. I downloaded it and read it in right. like 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah, don't do this for the money. And yeah, you don't do this for the money. You were a, a, a practicing physician yeah. at the time. Um, don't even so, take donations generally. Did, yes. So you were giving away this book and you would talk to – and you had a community on the internet and people would come talk to you. And so I, that's how I, I heard of you. I was on a retreat 
I was on a retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, and I was sitting next to some kid who just graduated from Yale, and he was really into meditation. And it was the part where you could talk right before we go into the silence, and he was like whispering, have you heard of Daniel Ingram? And I said, no. He's like, yeah, he's this doctor who says he's enlightened, and all the teachers <laughs> hate him because you're not supposed to say that you're enlightened, which we should talk about why you're not supposed to say it, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, gosh. So I was like, wow, a Dharma controversy? I didn't even know there was such a thing. And so I, after the retreat, I printed out the book and read it, and then we, we I made it my business to become friends with you, et cetera, et cetera. So you ha- you hung out a shingle, and you wrote this book called the um, – the, the Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. An unusually hardcore Dharma book. Yes, and you wrote by Daniel Ing- by Dr. Daniel Ingram – by the Arhat? Daniel M. Ingram. So I actually, weirdly enough, don't mix my doctor life and my meditation life oh, okay, a lot, okay. though I'm about to do a little bit more of that because I'm going to do some research stuff. So the, the MD and the master, you know, MSPH, you know, Master of Science in Public Health. I was actually in a PhD program in epidemiology at one point. I just, instead, of, I took all the coursework. Instead of doing that, I walked across the street and went to the medical school and didn't do my dissertation. Anyway, so, but I rarely mix those worlds. And so I, I don't usually mix the doctor thing. And like, so the doctor does not appear on the book. What does appear is by the Arha, the Arha. Daniel Ingram, or right. the something, then or the interdependent universe, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's anyway. it. yeah, it's in there in one of the versions. Yeah. Okay, that was the old version. Yep. Um, anyway, you call yourself an Arhat, and which is traditionally used to describe somebody who is fully enlightened, like no, gone are all negative emotions, uprooted are is is greed, hatred, and confusion. Actually, so, I would I would. That this other that could be a very long conversation of why I think that is not as accurately a traditional interpretation as you might think. But go on. And also, the Buddha clearly said he was more enlightened than the rest of his arhats. That's also canonical. So it's full enlightenment in this case. Technically, is Buddhahood not arhatship? The Buddha was an arhat, but also claimed to be so much more. I will leave verification or refutation of those claims to somebody else. But the point is, this is actually the the word full enlightenment is a loaded term. And so I explicitly have never said that I'm fully enlightened, nor do I believe that um, I am a full Buddha. In fact, I'm 100 percent convinced I am not. And so just to help, yes, I'm claiming something very impressive, but no, I'm not quite claiming that thing you say I'm claiming. Okay, people freaked out about this. Why did people freak out about this? Yeah, a zillion reasons. Um, So where where to start like and it depends on how cynical you want me to be um and how ungenerous you want me to be okay let's just start with the fact that traditionally it is true that discussing attainments has been relatively taboo in a lot of cultures and a lot of times in a lot of places and that's certainly relatively true in asian countries except they have this bizarre code so when mahasi sayadaw signs his book aha sorry um Aga Maha Pandita. So if you pick up, pick up Practical Insight Meditation, it is signed Aha Maga Pandita Mahasi Saidao. That title means Arhat in addition to a whole bunch of good scholarship, right? So that's what that word means. And if you were in a traditional Asian country, would you know he's signing as the name Arhat? Same with the book The Vimudi Maga, which is one of my favorite of the commentaries. This is a sort of a book that summarized a lot of Buddhist meditation techniques from somewhere around the first century um, uh, um, common era, CE, AD, whatever you want to say. And um, 
So it's also signed the Arhat Upatisa. The Buddha himself was very into saying he was an Arhat and also elaborating in detail all of the other things he could do, all the powers and all the other additional insights and all the you know things he had. He also was constantly calling out other people around him as Arhats, and people would say they had attained to Arhatship back in the traditional Buddhist Sangha. The Pali Canon is full of this, these stories. And then somewhere along the way, that got lost or mistranslated or like you could never say it or whatever. Well, if you go to Asian countries, there's all this code. So they just don't say it directly often, but they'll say it. And the Tibetan tradition, like they're not letting you wear certain fancy hats or have certain fancy titles unless you're seriously awakened, right? Or somehow have convinced someone you're seriously awakened, even if you aren't, um, right? So there's this whole system of disclosure, of openness about these things. They're practical, just like, you know, when I walk into the room, you know, in the, you know, when I was practicing emergency medicine, I'd walk in. And I'd say, I'm Dr. Daniel Ingram, because that's important for them to know that, right? I'm your doctor today. I'm not a tech. I'm not a nurse. Not that they aren't very important. They really are. But today, my functional role is as your doctor, and that's my training. And you need to know that so we have the interaction, you know. Um, And in the same way, back in the day and in modern times, you see this all the time in Asian countries and even some degree in the West now, where people will, will mention their claims and their attainments and what they can do. So you have the sense, oh, yeah, this is a doctor or, a sur- you know, this is a surgeon. They can take out my appendix. This is an arahat. It's reasonable discussion enlightenment with them. And that's how I view it. Now, um, that can also cause problems, right? So people claiming things that they don't have, people arguing over what the criteria are, exactly how they relate to all the emotional range stuff and how these relate to dark emotions or troubling emotions or negative emotions, which we've touched on a bunch and I'm happy to go there. Um, you know, and so people argue about these words and these things, but so, um, yeah, um, there was a, a thing as Buddhism came to the West where Zen came first and, um, Zen doesn't in a lot of ways, it's not, that there weren't elements of the Theravada or whatever, but you know, some, particularly in America, Zen was a stronger presence before the Theravada and insight stuff was. And they really don't talk about stages or states much. They're really not mappy people. Okay, cool. There are reasons not to be mappy, and it can be helpful sometimes not to be mappy. Get that. And then when some of the early insight practitioners, particularly inspired by Achan Cha, who is Thai forest, and really did not like talking about the stages of insight, though everybody, if you had asked anybody at the monastery, is Achan Cha an arhat, they would have said yes, which is sort of, you know, this bizarre game and dance everybody plays. Um, and so same thing with Mahasi Saida was claiming to be an arhat and plenty of other people claim to be arhats in Burma and Thailand and other places, Sri Lanka, et cetera. Um, not as much in Sri Lanka. And so then when it came to the West, though, a lot of people just said, this is going to cause too much competition, which it does cause a lot of competition sometimes. This is going to tra- cause too much comparison, which it does sometimes. True. This is going to cause too much judgment and we're too hard on ourselves and we're too neurotic and we can't even handle that there might be hierarchy right, or maps or levels of attainment, and, and it will cause neurosis, which is true. Those, those things all occur. They were, they were right. The people who said we shouldn't talk about the maps or the levels of the states, the problems that the, they identified, every single one of them they correctly identified as a problem, and they're right. I give them their arguments they're due. Okay, sure. I've seen all of those things within my own community and my own life and my own mind and my friends. These are all real problems. And yet... There are also benefits to being able to talk about the maps. And I've seen lots of people that is, you know, particularly when they hit like the dark night stages and they had no idea what the hell was going on. And you're like, yeah, that's normal after the A&P. And suddenly they're like, oh, that's normal. I'm not like broken. I'm not weird. I'm not this freak. I'm just not something horribly wrong with me. It's an expected thing. And then that normalization helps people. 
and they can do something and they can engage and they can figure out, they can apply all these standard technologies that have been developed to help people in those stages because now they have a diagnosis and they can apply appropriate treatment. That's really helpful for a lot of people. Not everybody. Not everybody likes the maps. Not everybody thrives with the maps, but some people really do. And so to have the option for people who like to be mappy and are willing to deal with the downsides, which there are some, you know, this is a country where in theory, the open flow of information, the lack of censorship and free speech are things we highly prize. And like if, you know, there there are some people that I think if there had been the library of Buddhism would have banned all the books that talked about the stages of insight, even the canonical ones. I'm being a little bit cynical, but that's that's often not how we try to do things here and what we sort of semi think of as the free world. And so I kind of rebelled against that sort of book banny, shouldn't talk about it, shouldn't tell anyone, should keep this a secret thing, and put the stuff out there. And, you know, that's caused good and bad effects. Not all good, but um, some people really have appreciated it, and that is a, a thing that seems to work for them. And I think they should have that valid option. So that's my argument for um, why these things are a good idea, but also to give acknowledgement to the fact that the people who argue against disclosing these things are making reasonable points. It can cause a lot of future mind where people are not engaged with that moment that would produce insights, but instead chasing a, a concept of the future in their minds that is not this moment. And it can take people away from the very experience that will wake them up. Those are real downsides of the maps. And if you're going to go into a mappy tradition, you have to learn to work with those. In fact, the problem is you can't unhear the map. So if you've listened to this podcast, you're kind of toast. Sorry about that, <laughs> right? So that's, I mean, should we give informed consent about these things? Should you have at the beginning of this, by the way, this is going to talk about the maps and the downsides of the maps is you can't unhear them. And now you might have judgment or comparison or reactivity against people who might have other levels of insight and entertainment, right? And so maybe we totally validly should have put informed consent at the beginning of the podcast. But, but you know, right? you and so, I have talked about this before, the deep end of the pool and the shallow end of the pool. Yeah. Right? So you really – you're trafficking in the deep end of the pool. And I, as the Mr. 10% happier and trying to help uh, people like, get interested in doing a minute to five minutes to ten minutes a day, I'm at the shallow end of the pool. In our previous discussions – and I don't know if you still hold this view you've, – you've said, look, OK, that's totally fine. If the, the people who just want to do a little bit to – to um, you know, improve their focus and lower their emotional reactivity. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's it, like it, that's it's a, it's, a, it's in some totally ways a true. different endeavor. Yeah, it's kind of like things you can do with water that are fun or good. Like some people want to sit in their hot tub for ten minutes a day, right? That's great. I love hot tubs. That's all they want to do with their water. Some people want to do an hour of water aerobics a day. That's a totally cool thing to do with water too. Some people want to go white water rafting whole lot more charge, maybe a whole lot more fun, maybe a whole lot more risk. And some few crazy people like me want to go surf, you know, 50 to 100 foot waves off the coast of Portugal in a metaphysical sense. I'm not actually a surfer, but you know what I mean? Like those are all totally valid, cool things to do with water that get to some exercise that might be exciting, interesting, whatever. I'm not saying this is all about excitement. It's about more than that wisdom and deep personal transformation. But in the same kind of way, like it would be bizarre if you couldn't tell anybody that like, you know, white water rafting existed. Or if the people who did whitewater rafting got all down on people who sat in their hot tubs for 10 minutes just relaxing and chilling out after a stressful day. That would also be equally weird. But the meditation world is often like that. And so I would really like it not to be like that and to realize there is a range. There's room in this ecosystem for all of us, those who like the strange deep end. Um, but actually, uh, these days, I'm actually kind of focusing on the middle sum in some ways, those people who have gotten into some insight territory through meditation or through a yoga class or through a breath workshop 
or through an entheogenic experience, which a lot of my friends cross the horizon and passing away the first time. Psychedelics. You know, yeah, psychedelics or whatever. You know, or just all kinds of situations, and some even as young kids for no obvious reason. I mean, I guess there's some karmic causality to it, but I don't know what it is. And then they're in it, and then they're in this thing, and the switch has been thrown, and you kind of can't go back. So helping people normalize these things and helping them learn to go forward and, you know, deal with what might be going on and, you know, the cycling that can occur and sorting it out from bipolar disorder and, and all of these things and helping provide emotional support and and all all of that is important. And so I think the languaging, the terms, the maps, the conceptual frameworks, if held with an appropriate looseness and maturity, can be very beneficial. But learning, there is a learning curve there. And so that learning curve and how to deal with the maps and do it in a mature, reasonable, sane, healthy way um, is, you know, one of the things that I think should be more broadly taught and more broadly encouraged. I want to say something in your defense, which may be awkward for you to say, so I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to ask you a bunch of hard questions. Okay. In your defense, uh, it's not like you are going out there and saying, hey, I'm this enlightened guy. Come give me all your money and follow me blindly. I'm walking around in robes, whatever. You are, uh, until recently, a practicing physician who wrote a book with the goal, as I understood it and continue to understand it, of helping other people get uh, learn about the as we said before, deep end of the pool, of, sure. uh, and you were able, you were willing to say some things that would be controversial, mm-hmm. and you also made yourself accessible to people who had questions to you, and you never charged. Uh, you, in fact, you gave away the book. You can buy a hard copy of the book on Amazon, but uh, you can also get it for free. Um, and so you had your own sources of income. You were not looking for acolytes or um, uh, p- people to give you a ton of money. So I want to say all that unless you, and, and move on to something unless you want to add to it. I do actually want to add to sure. that. So it's more than that. So not only do, am I not um, getting money for this, the small amount of money I make from the book, which people are like, oh, my God, he's making all this money. No, it's generally less than like $2,000 a year and sometimes as little as 1000 And then after my tax bracket as a doctor, that like take, you know, half of that, <laughs> not quite. And um and then, you know, I would use that to actually fund the server time for the Dharma Overground, which is a community that I founded with Vince Horn. It's online. You can find it, dharmaoverground.org, which is a free community that I pay for. I pay Vince for the development costs. Pod- Vince has been yeah. on this podcast, I should say. Yeah, super nice guy. Good guy. And um, he helped me start that because he had some technical skills I didn't and Dharma interest and thought it would be good. And so that's a free online community that I actually use the little bit of money I make on the book. It goes to support that. And so even that I don't keep for myself. And then um, all the emails that I get, I answer them for free. Sometimes it takes me a while to get to them, right? So um, might be weeks, sometimes occasionally months. Uh, every request for Skype calls, I generally take those. But I refer almost everybody out to somebody else. So I'm usually like, yeah, in your local community, there's actually this good teacher. Or, hey, there's this other center you should sit at. Or there's this other, you know, these people who are teaching Dharma and want students. And so I'm not actually even wanting students. I don't have anybody I think of as my formal students. I'm not running retreats that are open to the public. I, um, I you know, sometimes go on little retreats with a few friends who want to practice together. Um, so I'm, I'm, and I actually, you know, so I'm not looking for students. I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for power. I don't, the only organization I run is this online forum that I almost never have to do anything authoritarian about except ban the occasional person that's causing a bunch of trouble. And so, yeah, I'm I'm doing it because people were kind enough to teach me freely. And they taught, even more important than that, they taught me honestly. So Bill Hamilton would honestly talk about the stages of insight. Mahasi Sado honestly talked about the stages of insight. Um, 
Kenneth Folk, who very early on had some uh, taught me some things, um, would talk about the stages of insight, uh, etc. Et and so, um, in this way, uh, I'm passing on what people were kind enough to do for me because it changed my life. It opened horizons that I didn't know were possible. It allowed me to attain things I had no idea existed. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And they taught me for free. Christopher Chip, Titmus didn't charge me. Bill Hamilton didn't charge me. None of them, Sharda, you know, Norman, you know, Christina Feldman even, they, they weren't charging me money. And so there was no financial relationship, nor were they looking for me to be their student. I wasn't, Christopher wouldn't say, oh, be, come be my student. He was never saying anything like that. Um, and so uh, in that same kind of way, I'm passing on that same spirit. This is nothing weird about me. This is just like, that's the tradition I was brought up in. That's the model I was exposed to. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was really in keeping with the traditional teachings of the Buddha. And so I'm following this model. And there's nothing particularly weird about that causality. Okay, so let me get to the hard questions. How do you know you're not deluding yourself about your levels of attainment? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so the very interesting thing is my immediate experience is so radically different from how it was. That's incredibly compelling. It's certainly possible I'm delusional, um, although the other people I've talked to who have managed to reproduce the experiment were all clearly victims of the same delusion. Um, uh, you know, Saito Upandita Jr. is, if, if I'm deluded, then he's deluded because he thought I had attained to this thing, right? If I'm deluded, then Bill Hamilton was deluded. Then Mahasi Saito perhaps was deluded. Perhaps we're all crazy, except I, I wouldn't tra trade this for anything except maybe world peace, and then I would do it reluctantly. This is so much better of an upgrade. The level of sensate clarity I have is off the charts. Um, the the sense of naturalness, the entire thing unfolding, the sense of a doer is totally gone and has not arisen again at all under any circumstances since that retreat in April of 2003. The sense of light or awareness that's in everything, the sense of the sort of linear thing that's processing everything is utterly gone and nothing seems to change that. I've had the flu, I've had, you know, serious pain, I've broken bones. I like, nothing changes that basic thing that the mind is now clear. It seems to have flipped over to some different way of perceiving reality that's bomb-proof. I mean, maybe I could stroke out some part of my brain it would injure it. I don't know. But barring that, it seems to like, it seems to handle everything. And so with the sense of a watcher, a subject, a doer, a knower, a stable entity, all being totally eradicated, you can call that whatever you like. Pick your favorite term for it. If you don't like the word arhat or you don't like the word path or you don't like the word whatever, you don't have to call it anything, nor do you even have to believe it. But would I recommend doing the experiment for people who want to see for themselves? It's easy to criticize, right? It's easy to say, oh, you're just a nut. Okay, fine, maybe I am. But the first principles of it, that perhaps you could pay attention to these straightforward aspects of reality clearly and then learn to perceive them automatically, just like you learn to read automatically, is not a weird set of assumptions. And so way more important than some dude babbling in a hypomanic voice on a podcast is that if you're interested in this stuff, you go do the experiment. So the Buddha and me and everybody else says, go see for yourself, right? Go check it out if, if this calls to you. And if it doesn't, and you're not willing to do the experiment, then be a little um, hesitant with some of your criticisms. Not that skepticism isn't warranted. It totally is. I was all kinds of skeptical about all this stuff until it started happening to me. I was like, really? 
you know, again, I was very, very scientific, materialistically rigid for, you know, the first half of my life. And then all of a sudden, um, I was like, okay, no, this stuff is happening. I can't, I, that paradigm doesn't work for me anymore. You described sort of the beauty of the state in which you claim to live right now. But I, I wonder, you are, I mean, I'll say, I consider you a friend. I think you're awesome. But you retain some human foibles. Like you talk Absolutely. about being hypomanic. You talk, talk a little bit about uh, being arrogant. How can those things be true if you're in, as enlightened as you say? So it's uh, – there are a bunch of different analogies that I use. So for example, the Buddha. The Buddha was always talking about how awakened he was. His very name means I am awakened, the name he chose for himself. And like his, the first person he talked to that wasn't a god or a giant snake was this wandering ascetic who who said, wow, you, you, you're this glowing dude. What's up? And he's like, I am awakened. I am the knower of worlds, you know, tamer of gods and humans, you know, you know, unsurpassed in my, ex you know, blah, 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 blah. Like the first person he ever met, he friggin' unloaded this <laughs> unbelievable list of incredible stuff he was, right? And I'm not doubting that. Maybe he was all those things. Cool. Like somehow his teachings are still incredibly profoundly personally transforming 2,500 years later. That's some, that says something. You know, he was clearly impressive, right? And he was not afraid of saying it at all, right? And so the Buddha himself, um, unless you're willing to, oh, he was, it was arrogant, but it was empty. Okay. Yeah. But that arrogance part, that confidence part, that telling it like he thinks it is part, um, read the Buddhist text with that filter and start looking for that. And you're like, oh yeah, actually. And so the history of the life of the Buddha, there was constant conflict and struggle. He had back pain. He had bad headaches that were like debilitating. He had bad back pain that was debilitating. He had to rest a bunch. Um, he had all kinds of conflicts with people. He argued with people. He used really like harsh language with people sometimes. And people were like, oh no, it's just the Buddha. You can figure no, but like that was like pay attention. Pay attention to the, the what the stories actually tell you. Read it and with that filter and go, okay, wait a second. And then look at modern times. Right? So like plenty of people go to Asia and they're like, Yeah, there was this Arhat monk throwing a rock at a dog. Like, what's up with that? So just because as Chi Nol said, is 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 a Chan guy or Zen, you know, Korean Chan. And um, he said, just because the sun is shining brightly doesn't mean all the snow melts, melts at once. And the notion that the simple fact of perceiving that things are, you know, intrinsically luminous, ephemeral, empty, you know, whatever you want, you know, pick your favorite words for this kind of experience. That doesn't mean it suddenly writes all biological or cultural or you know, childhood conditioning. It just isn't true. It would be sort of like imagining that everybody who is a great piano player, of course, would be a great writer, right? They're, they have incredible skill at hitting keys all day long. They make beautiful music. And yet, is every great piano player who can hit keys really well all day long and play beautiful music a great writer? I'm not sure that's true. And I'm not sure why you would think that. Or are all great writers great piano players? Everybody who can type really well and write really well, are they all great piano players? No. It seems so closely related. You think, of course, but okay, no, wait, no. And in the same kind of way, modern reality testing. So I've had plenty of teachers you've heard of come up and say, hey, yeah, that thing you claim to have done, I've done that too. And then we'll talk about it, right? Um, that's one of the really sort of I'm honored to have had some of those conversations. That's really um, grateful that people get to have those. And um, – you talk about it, and yeah, it doesn't perform like they, you know, they 
can still, you know, make love with their partners. They can still be irritable when they get hungry. Like there's still some physiology. Like it, it, all of the traditional presentation in the text just does not hold up to modern reality testing. And yet the fact of insight and in the seeing just the seen, in the hearing just the heard, totally does, is totally doable today. And so, um, yeah, so you have to, with modern reality testing and empirical methods, right, can you reproduce the experiment? And then when lots of reproduce, people reproduce the experiment, what do they find? You can find that some of it holds up really well and some of the traditional myths and dogmas just don't actually. And so that's, I'm also a scientist, right? So I have MSPH in epidemiology and an MD and I've published papers and journals and stuff. Like, so I appreciate that empiricism, empiricism in both sense of the words, that we're doing the experiment and we're using our own experience as the basis of reality. So that's my answer. You talk about the doability of this, but how doable is it really? I mean, can I, has somebody in my position with a kid and a bunch of cats and uh, two jobs, uh, can I really achieve stream entry, not, not to mention our hardship? Um, I know people who get stream, got stream entry actually without even practicing. So occasionally it even happens. But actually, I know people have gotten even higher paths than that without doing anything you would call meditative. Okay, so well, there's that a, there's hasn't a, happened for me. So the, the problem is rather than thinking yes, no, black, white, dimension, sorry, categorically about this, we need to think dimensionally. There is clearly a bell curve to this stuff. And there are dose-dependent sort of probability shifts. So it is true that people who practice more, go on more retreats, you know, have better concentration or whatever, sit with better teachers. It's true. All of those things are going to increase the probability that these things are likely to happen. But I know people who did this stuff in daily life uh, worth complicated lives uh, who just um, either were just a few natural talents. I know a few people who are just friggin' naturals. Okay, so, so we'll ignore the supernatural talents who just, they've just got it. Like Mozart was writing symphonies at age four. There are a few of those people. I know those meditators. I'm jealous. I was not one, <laughs> right? But okay, they exist. There are not many. And then you have people who, like me, with a whole bunch of work and a bunch of retreats and a bunch of practice can do this stuff. And then you have people who, I know a few people who have gotten paths in daily life literally people who have gone on no retreats and they just did some practice and they were meticulous about the daily mindfulness. Every single activity you do except some certain types of inner processing cognitive work and certain sort of conversational things sometimes are really pretty amenable to just noticing their true nature, noticing their arising and passing away, all the little blips and flickers that make up that experience, noting them, paying really careful, meticulous attention to their vividness, their vibrancy, all the little details all the little moment to moment, pop, 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 pop. And so it is possible with diligent practice and dedication to lead a hectic life, hectic, hectic life and do this. Is it as easy? No. Can it be done? Yes. And I know people who have done it. But the, the, one of the, you, you talked about this before in, in, in your defense, but one of the criticisms of, of you is that people like me, sort of type A, ambitious people, hear you talk and get very inspired and then get very – our practices get infused with a real striving that can yeah. be a hindrance. True. As um, I mentioned earlier and totally, absolutely true. A great point. And so what, uh, what, what do we do about that? Yeah. So one has to be very, very careful. I have a chapter in my book, my book again, which you can get for free at mctb.org. Um, so <laughs> there's a chapter called A Clear Goal. And in the chapter called A Clear Goal, I talk a lot about working with – that future problem, that striving problem. 
So you have people who say, I'm going to get enlightened. Okay. And then you have people say, I'm going to practice really well and get enlightened. And then you have people who say, I'm going to practice right here, noticing these sensations in my body mind so that I get enlightened. And then you have people who are just like, yeah, I'm going to notice these sensations right here in my body mind, right here, right now, this sensation, this breath, this sight, this sound, this moment, these fingers, these feet, walking to the parking lot, going in the elevator, walking down the hallway, going to the bathroom, brushing their teeth, eating a meal, you know, waiting for the subway, whatever they're doing, you know, going to bed, walking, you know, putting on their slippers. They're going to pay attention to that. Those are the people you're going to bet on winning, right? If you were a betting person, which, you know, you're sort of asking the question, what increases your probability is kind of a betting game. If you had to bet, you're going to bet on that one because that's a person who now has a very, very mature, um, skillful relationship to the problems with the maps, with striving, and with the goals. Someone who has finally recognized, you know, this here in this fathom-long body, in this moment, is where I find it or I don't. There is no future moment that is it. It is this moment or it isn't. And you just go, okay, right here, again, again, again. And what's really interesting is like when you teach people on retreat or you go on retreats with people and you all practice together, you can feel people who have finally dropped into that groove. And it feels really good to be around them. There's something just so nice about that. They're like, now that it's like you could, because they're claiming their power, right? They're really claiming their power and directing it well. And they're claiming their birthright in this moment to be clear about it and to be wise about it and to understand it as it arises. And they've got that fundamental concept down. And it's just delightful to be around. In that same way, people who are really strivy and really competitive and really, it just makes them irritated and agitated and being around this, uh, like, you know, and you can tell it's causing them more suffering. And that's true. And this is a danger. Again, the, the people who criticize the map-based traditions or even making these things publicly disclosed, they're right. And that happens. But there is a way to grow up with that, just like in sports, right? So when we're little kids, we might get really angry when we're playing a sport, like the other team, you know, won and we lost and they're crying and they're angry and they're screaming and they're just like so upset. And their parents might be the same way, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the mad soccer mom or soccer dad or whatever, you know, or basketball mom, da- basketball dad or, you know, whatever. They're all, ah, in the same kind of way. Um, but there are people who can grow up and like, you know, they play a great game of sports and like, one team won, one team lost, but they all like had a great, they were, had a great time playing the game and they all shake each other's hand at the end. Yeah, see you next game. Okay, see you next game. You know, it's got a whole different feel to it. And that's like mature sportsmanship in the same way with the Dharma, mature competition or mature comparison it can have a really fun, jovial, playful, inspiring feel to it. Like, yeah, oh man, that was an awesome pass you threw, but next time I'm going to throw an even better one. And that kind of like collegial fun attitude is, is an attitude we adopt for all kinds of other things, right? You know, and that's what we, we hope to see in champions, right? So like the champions we like in the Olympics are the ones that were like, you know, really nice people and really congratulative of the other team or the people that didn't get the gold when they did. Right. But the people are like, yes, I got the gold. Yeah. yeah." We're kind of like, oh, yeah. okay, not so good. Right. And so in that same kind of way, we we learned this for all kinds of other skills and areas of life, you know, academic degrees and, you know, what car you drive, whatever, you know. And but we the mature people, we can there are some people who learn to be mature in the face of competition and comparison. This is something we've done for so many other things. Why can't we do it for this? Of course we can. 
In closing, let's do uh, what I call the plug zone. Can you just uh, – I know you, you gave us the website for the book, but you um, can you just describe this new edition of the book, where we can get it, where we can find the Dharma Overground, where we can find you, et cetera, et cetera. Give us the whole thing. Okay. So there's Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which you can – sorry, you can um, read for free and soon enough we will be able to download a PDF of for free at www.mctb.org. You sound like a radio announcer. Thanks. Um, (laughs) And then I I actually have another site with uh, some friends of mine um, called www.firecasina.org, F-I-R-E-K-A-S-I-N-A dot O-R-G. And that's actually about using candle flame as a meditation object. It's also free. There's a free book you can download there or you can print one out on Lulu. We don't get any money from that. We just have them charge the printing costs. We're not making a red cent off of that book. And um, you can hear all kinds of interesting reports of what happens when people do candle flame and go deep in that practice. Um, And then the Dharma Overground, which is a community of practitioners who like talking openly about these things. It's an online forum with all the glories and problems of an online forum, you know, so just, you know, but uh, it's www.dharmaoverground.org. And so these are some places you can find some of my stuff or my own website is um, integrateddaniel.info spelled just like you'd figure. And social media? So I'm on Twitter at Daniel M. Ingram, I think is the major one where you'll find me in sort of social media. And the book, just so people know, is is your, well, I read the first edition, but it's basically your story and practical tips. So I took the first edition of the book, which had almost no autobiographical details, and I made it twice as long. It was like 160,000 words or whatever. Now it's like 320,000. So yeah, it's a gigantic hog of a book. I'm working on a summary. Sorry for how long it is. Uh, but it added all kinds of additional details about concentration practices, a whole lot of additional details and practice tips that come out of me telling my own story. So if you want to hear the story, you can read all about it in the book. And I just went into a whole lot of other topics that I hadn't gone into in the same kind of way, like dependent origination and actually talking about these things skillfully and powers and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. Powers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a discussion for a different podcast. But whether one can achieve powers is any uh, like supernormal powers uh, is is. Yeah. An interesting discussion. Read Real Magic by Dean Radin, R-A-D-I-N. Yes, he just, Daniel, by the way, just recommended that to me over lunch, which preceded the taping of this podcast. Um, yeah, Daniel, I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and I appreciate you being a friend. You've been a huge influence on my thinking about these issues, so it's been long overdue to have you on the on the show. Delightful enjoying your friendship as well, sir. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been fun. And I hope that you're able to get something useful, practical for yourself as a practitioner and don't get too caught up in the details or story of just one dude um, because that's not as helpful as you learning these things for yourself. Good place to close. Thanks, buddy. Okay, big thanks to Daniel Ingram there. Uh, As a reminder, we're not doing voicemails this week. There was was, that was a lengthy episode um, a lot of pretty quite meaty, uh, but we are looking for new voicemails. As I said, 646-883-8326, 646-883-8326. I imagine this episode in particular is provoking a lot of questions. So feel free to call us with your questions. You can also, if you're an app subscriber and you have burning questions or frustrations or whatever, or new goals based on what you just heard, 
you can ask your coach on the app. Go to the coach, find the coaching feature, and uh, our coaches are standing by and very happy and eager to answer any and all of your questions. Big thanks to all the people who put together this show, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace uh, Livingston, among others. Big thank you as well to our little uh, feedback group that gives us feedback on every, gives me feedback uh, on every episode. Um, that's in- immensely valuable. Really appreciate that. And thank you to you for listening. Uh, as always, we love it when you uh, rate us, review us, talk about us on social media. That boosts our ratings and helps more people find us. I will see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.